Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Nicholas Tampio, who's the author of Teaching Political Theory, A Pluralistic Approach. This was published by Edward Elgar, Press or Publishers in 2022, and it's part of the Elgar Guides to Teaching. It's a really interesting book to thinking about how we teach political theory and what political theory is. So I very much enjoyed reading it as I just jumped into the classroom um, and started teaching the apology in my political theory class this week. Um, so I'd like to welcome Nick Tampio to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lily. It's great to be here. Uh, I'll just say real quick, I love your book on the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Thank you. So mutual, mutual fans. Um, so it, what happened was in 2019, I faced a choice. I um, had published an, a, an article with Eon called Look Up From Your Screen that really seemed to resonate actually around the globe about the importance of in-person interactions and what happens when you get together in person that can't be replicated by screens. So I was I was very tempted to write a trade book on that topic. And then Edward Elger reached out to me and they had this series called Teaching Blank. You know, they they um, they had a very successful series on teaching the county, teaching human resources, teaching uh, various other things like that. And so they were starting a social sciences line. And I thought, well, you know, I think it's very important that political theory be in this series. And shoot, if it's going to be in the series, I'd like to uh, I'd like to be the one to write the book. Well, it was a real it was a real labor of love. I um, you know I had a choice that could have maybe sold more copies. I, you know, there's a there's a finite number of political theorists who are interested in advice about teaching, but it it really you know I spent my whole professional career uh, teaching students and thinking about students how to teach students and. It really opens up big questions of what is political theory and why is it in a political science department and how can we convince our colleagues that it's very important to teach political theory. So I was trying to do a lot of things in the book. The book is partly practical advice about how I think you should teach political theory if, the, if you're fortunate enough to do it. But it's also bigger questions of, of what is political theory and, and what is the relationship to political science. And and so and getting into that particular line of discussion, which I did find really interesting, the way you were sort of weaving it into discussions of like how to think about teaching political theory uh, because of the abstract nature of political theory. 
Um, but that this idea of what is political theory obviously is um, not simple <laughs> and, and, and not necessarily stagnant. Um, so could you talk a little bit about sort of the role of political theory within our understanding of the discipline of political science, as well as the larger role of political theory? Well, I, I was very grateful that um, that Edward Elder was able to give give the book the cover it has. I asked NASA for the cover, and it's a picture of ocean flows. And for me, for as long as I've been teaching political theory, it's been the guiding metaphor of what I think political theory is. So I, I tell students every year that the news cycle is is the waves. That every day there's a new cycle of of the news stories and if you read the newspaper you could stay up on current events and that's important certainly but that there's a deeper level of politics that rather than just focus on president biden president trump president obama that there are scholars who, who spend their whole career studying the presidency and they realize that all sorts of things matter about if it's early in the term late in the term who their vice president is who their funders are what their campaign stops it so there's a whole scholarly literature and and same goes for international relations about studying Russia, about studying China, that there's various ways that political scientists try to help us get a deeper understanding of, of political life. But many of the events in politics involve human beings. And and you're trying to figure out, well, are human beings capable of acting morally? Are we capable of act, exercising freedom? Are we trapped within economic forces that are much larger than human nature? So it opens up to some very profound, deep questions. So I, I think that political theory is is the study of the deep questions. Things like, what is human nature? What can human beings know? What is the nature of reality? Does God exist? How do we know God exists? If God exists, what does that mean for our political life? And, and, uh, and so I, I don't, part of my reason I wrote the book was to try to explain to political theorists how to explain to political scientists why we have a role in the discipline. And and I think that when relations are healthy, there's we we assist one another, that we can raise questions and concerns and possibilities that maybe more empirical political scientists are necessarily thinking about. You can't see with your naked eye justice. Political scientists, but yet we can't talk about politics without talking about justice. So political scientists, political science departments need people who focus on justice, who focus on human nature. And there's a lot of different ways to explore the ocean flows of, of political life. So we need lots of different types of political theorists trying to get to the deepest level in different ways. And that's a great overview of like why we should be in political science departments. Um, but at the same time, you know, political theory encompasses so much um, in terms of, of what we read and what we discuss. I mean, you and I were just talking before we started recording about how, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe provides us with a, a place and a space to sort of get into discussions that are political theory in context. Um, can you explain a little bit about like what political theorists read in quotation marks? Well, I, there's a there's a passage in the book talking about tradition. And what does it mean to be a tradition? And so the, the etymology of the word is to hand over. And so to hand over has two connotations. On the one hand, we, you and I have inherited books. We've been handed books by our teachers and by the tradition. 
And now it's our responsibility to hand over these same books to our students. Um, so I tell my, I, I taught intro to uh, political philosophy this past week, started the class or maybe two weeks ago. And, and students were saying, well, what's the difference between what you're doing and what we did in our philosophy class? And I said, well, it's, it's mostly the books we're responsible for teaching. Uh, I teach at Fordham University. I teach Machiavelli. I'm the person who teaches Machiavelli. I'm the person who teaches James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Um, that that uh, in sociology they might do Max Weber, in theology they might do, do Saint Augustine, and yet there are plenty of political theorists who read Max Weber and Augustine. So there's no we we shouldn't try to police the borders too too you know rigorously. We we can we can keep open uh, the flows. You know, it's hard to tell where one ocean ends and another ocean begins. So it's same with the difference between philosophy and clinical theory and theology and sociology that we're all, if you ask me, there's a side of all of these disciplines that are trying to get to the deepest level. And so if I had, if I had maybe two more months and 30 more pages, I went up to my, my page limit, but I would have loved to have written another chapter on economic philosophers. So I teach a whole course with Adam Smith, Karl Marx. Hayek, Cedric Robinson, Nancy Frazier. So they're all, I mean, Nancy Frazier's political science, Cedric Robinson's political science, but they're all thinking about economics. And, and so there, again, there's no, there's no sharp boundary. If you ask me, we're, we're all trying to get to the deepest level. And so for me, I, I just want to read the best that I can get from different subdisciplines. Um, at the same token, you know, there is a certain consistency where we are responsible for certain people. So it's not just anything goes. I mean, we, we, we are, but with, within, within the tradition, there's still so much room to, to play with and choose your own authors. And, and in that regard, you know, sort of the handing of the books. I, I mean, I'm still using my copy of the Republic that I read as an undergraduate, even though the pages are falling out. And, I finally, I finally replaced a copy of the Federalist I had that was being held together with rubber band, um, and I, I know this is like you know from understanding that I was in college at the time of the dinosaurs, um, and my students are reading everything um, in this on a screen, uh, but when you start to talk about you know the tradition of handing the the books and the ideas in the books, right? It's not necessarily the books themselves. But the ideas in the books and what these um, these individuals and and those who helped them um, and you know t perhaps typed up some of their work or you know were actually interlocutors with them, um, the ideas are what we're passing along, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. And the the yes and is that sometimes uh, a lot of ideas are connected with one another. And so, I mean, I suppose I'm closer to maybe continental philosophy than analytic philosophy. So analytic philosophers focus on ideas and continental philosophers tend to focus on figures, like um, the difference between science, like natural science, what analytic does, where it's just lots of journal articles and, and continental philosophy, which is more like art history, where you studied Michelangelo, Leonardo, the big, the big people. So, I mean, I, I, I explained early in the book, students should take classes with professors who are doing what they love. And so it's, if a department has an analytic philosopher, cool, learn, you know, learn as much as you can from them. But I'm, I'm coming out of the great books tradition. And what I would just say is that for, if you read Plato's Republic, 
you're learning about human nature, you're learning about metaphysics, you're learning about epistemology, you're learning about pedagogy, you're learning that all of these things are together. So I think that there's some, I mean, I still see the value in books and and when I teach and certainly in my own work, I really take seriously the notion of logographic necessity, just a fancy word from Leo Strauss, which is that all the ideas are connected, that great thinkers think very carefully about what words they use. And so for me, I don't, I, I want to go to these authors to learn from them. And it strikes me as pigeonholing them in advance saying, all right, we're going to read this per Frederick Douglass only for freedom. Well, Frederick Douglass got a lot of stuff going on. So that, that, you know, I, I'm just trying to be forthright with my, with my biases. I'm a, I'm a great books person, sign the articles. Yes, you're right. We need ideas, but, but I think there's something precious about books. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, in opposed. Obviously I'm not opposed to books. Um, but it's just that the the ideas are inside the books, um, and and that's often how I I am thinking about it. So you have characterized yourself as somebody who um, is in the great books tradition, and you talk about this in the in the book itself in terms of different approaches to political theory, um, and you just discussed analytical philosophy versus continental philosophy. But within the sort of realm of political theory, there are a number of different sort of approaches as well. Um, and, and you do discuss these. And this is also part of what your pedagogy is, is in, in terms of how you're instructing students to engage with the books, engage with the thinkers, engage with the ideas. Can you explain a little bit about the different approaches in political theory? Um, and why we should, you know, have an understanding of those different approaches. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question. Uh, when I was a grad student at Johns Hopkins, I took a class uh, called Politic Reading with Kirstie McClure, and we spent the whole semester reading profound thinkers about all of those questions. And so, anything I say is just going to be a very here, here's my here's what I've gleaned from from a, a career of teaching political theory and reading books about about this material. I think it's. I think it's lots of different approaches have a piece of the puzzle. I I like the Cambridge School. I when I whenever I teach an author, I try to give a little bit of the background. I try to be attentive to the immediate social and intellectual context of when they were writing. I certainly look out for Cambridge books for ideas about uh, uh, how to make the material, explain it to students. So if, uh, Ian Hunter's book Radical Enlightenment is totally change how I think about Cod's project. So I see the value of the Cambridge School. And yet I'm not on the Cambridge School. I find that it could get kind of parochial that you're, you're sort of lodging specific thinkers at a particular time and place. And, and and if that's the case, why would we be reading them now? So so learn from the Cambridge School, not on the Cambridge School. Uh, I like the Leo Strauss approach of reading the history of political philosophy and seeing sort of the big sweeping narrative. And... Uh, one of the things he said in one of his essays, he said, it'd be great if we could read the greatest political thinkers of China and India, but we're not able to do that. Well, 50, 60 years later, with translations and area specialists, we're much closer to being able to do this, right? So I think that nothing in Leo Strauss would have prevented him from wanting to read Confucius, Mengsa, Shunza, all these other great political thinkers who, for my money, are, are just as, as deep as, as the Greek philosophers working at the same time in another, in another corner of the world. Um, I, I mean, I, I learned a lot from studying with Bill Connolly. Bill Connolly, 
in his great book, Political Theory and Modernity, I think not enough people read it or, or go to it, but he just he just goes to these thinkers and just has sort of takes ideas from them and has kind of a conversation with them, uh, Rousseau, Hobbes, Marquis de Sade, other Nietzsche, and and he there's a, he can't really get away with this style anymore. I don't even know if you could have got away with Bill Connolly's era, but he said in the beginning, I'm going to have like a bibliographic essay at the end, and I'm not going to really cite sources, secondary sources. I'm still going through uh, my engagement. So, but you know, when we teach, we don't cite sources. We don't get go on lengthy. We don't get footnotes when we're when we're lecturing. So, Bill Connolly's approach is, I think, very valuable. So I, I I I suppose I try to have a lot of styles, and I try to I guess make my own style. I I really like the idea of being very concise, concentrated, and just giving thing giving people things that they can use. So that that's a style I like. I like one of my very first publications. I think maybe a thousand words. It was in uh, uh, what was it? It was PS Political Science and Politics called Writing Political Theory. It's like a it's like a thousand words, and it's just hopefully filled with good advice. That that's the style I like. People are busy; that they, they want they want things they can take and use, and and that's how I try to write. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And this is also, um, again, not just about writing, but obviously about teaching um, political theory. And so that you sort of come into your discussion of of these ideas and these authors and these books um, in terms of, you know, what, how and how and what you want your students to sort of learn as they're engaging, um, which is also what I found really exciting about the book is it, it's very personal um, because you, you use a lot of, you know, I tried this, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like it was a good idea, um, which, you know, for many of us, this is what teaching is. It's, it, it's, you know, like I have this great idea for a course and let's see if it flies. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how you are distilling your ideas around pedagogy and political theory in this book, sure. So, so it's not it's not a textbook. It's it's not even really a guide to how to teach. Edward Elgar just said, "Just give share ideas about teaching." That was that was a perfect thing. I um, we become professors because we we want to be our own bosses, and so uh, that you know you don't want somebody else telling you how you're supposed to teach. So I'm very very sensitive to that. I absolutely do not want anybody to tell me how to teach. Um, but I I wanted to share things that I thought would work, that I found have worked for me. If I'm allowed to brag for a minute here, my teaching evaluations have always been strong, and yet my approaches have totally changed over time. When I, when I started, I wrote out my entire lectures and read them, which is what John Rawls did and Jill Deleuze did. And I thought, well, that's what you're supposed to do as a professor. But 
uh, in the last day of my very first class at Johns Hopkins, I just conversationally explained what I had tried to do that semester and I got a standing ovation. And all of a sudden the light went off that, okay, I need to start speaking from my heart. And when I was starting, I would dedicate a lot of time to having students read aloud passages. And I said, we're just going to make sure that we're getting the ideas. We're, we're going to do a seance. We're going to bring these thinkers to life. Okay. You're going to be Cephalus. You're going to be Polymarchus. You're going to be Socrates. Let's read these two pages. Go. So that's what, that's what I did for a few years. And then I had a student at Hamilton College in course evaluation said, it was a great class, but I think Professor Campio is going to get better. And I want to go back to that. I want to go back to that student and say, yeah, I sure hope you're right. Because I really, I think that what I've just, what I've just increasingly done is, is for a long time, I went in with uh, a bullet point on a piece of paper and just said, all right, I've got structure and yet I'm going to speak from the heart. So I'm going to make sure I go through all my bullet points, but it's also going to be conversational. Then like a lot of us, I went to the PowerPoint era. It's still, it just, PowerPoint is just an amazing tool just to have wonderful pictures and, and have a quote up on the board. So, but even now it's, it's, it's still in flux that I'm discovering that students really, really want to talk. And if you, so my lecture time is just getting shorter and shorter. So when I was a student, I didn't like when uh, other students hogged time. I didn't like when the professor didn't have a plan. So I, I very much believe in having this very carefully thought out syllabus. I believe the professor should be in control. I think that the the professor needs to have an idea of what the instructor should have an idea of what they want to do by the end of class. But I've just, I've worn more, I've just become comfortable with, okay, students, um, Du Bois says that we can divide the world into the, to the, you know, the colored world and the dark world and the white world. What do you think? Does this seem like a, what's your initial thought? Is this a, is this a fair way to divide up the globe? Okay. Take five minutes, just get a groups of four and just talk with each other. And so I, I would say that's a, that's a legacy that I, I got from the COVID pandemic era where we were all on Zoom. We, we did black uh, breakout rooms and I've discovered a person that students seem to like to talk. So if I, if, if students can effectively spend 10, 15 minutes of every class talking, well, that's awesome. That's, that's great. It's every, uh, a very, one thing, one thing that makes me very proud. I, I very rarely have students yawn in my classes. So you know, I really do not, I do not want anybody sleeping. I do not want anybody looking out the window. I don't want anybody zoning out. I want to just, I'm going to say a few things to get the conversation going. Okay, let's have a conversation. And when people are having a conversation that they're engrossed in, time flies, they're not, they're not getting distracted. Uh, so that, that's, that's where I am right now, but we, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next few years, next, my career unfolds. Maybe I'll try some new things out. And so in, in the book, you do talk about, you know, sort of your experiences and some things that have, have gone well. And, and you do go through, you know, sort of how to incorporate different ideas and how to structure maybe a syllabus um, and assignments. And you're also talking about in, in the book, you're talking about pulling in from areas that are not quite, quote, canonical. Um, in terms of, you know, African-American political thought, which is a, a canon in and of itself, but is not necessarily always considered, you know, canonical political theory. Um, and you're talking about, you know, Chinese theory, as you already referenced um, 
you know, Leo Strauss's commentary with regard to Chinese or Middle Eastern political thinkers um, or Islamic political thinkers. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you're doing in this book with regard to integrating ideas from less Western thinkers? So if you're giving a book on teaching political theory, you have to have some examples. You have to have some content. You just can't talk pure pedagogy. That did, for me, it wouldn't make any sense. So I tried to, I tried to fill the book with what strikes me as promising things to study, promising authors, promising ideas, traditions. And so I really, I, I cited a lot of scholarship. So I'm trying to be representative of the discipline. And yet it's also a, a deeply personal book about what I think is, is interesting and important in, in political science, political theory. So I, uh, I think it's super important to study Chinese thinkers. It's one, it's just, they're a huge country, China's a huge country, and it's super important for the next, you know, for the rest of our lives. And so, so I think that's, it's as, as much as you can gain some ideas about other traditions, other cultures from reading their work, I think it's worth doing. But I also I also had certain ideas about what the approach should be. How do you, what's a what's a productive way to read Mengsa and Shunsa and all these other great thinkers? And so I the the approach that I use is that I ask different authors the same question. So what you do is you you find different thinkers and you ask them the same question, and by comparing their answers, you can stage a conversation. So Han Feitso lived at the end of the Warring States period. It's at the beginning of, of the Qin Dynasty. Machiavelli is, of course, living during the Italian Renaissance when lots of principalities and, and kingdoms are, are at war with one another. So they lived, they lived apart by about 2,000 years, or around 1,700 years. So you can't, if you're using the, the strict Cambridge school of political thought, you can't put them in conversation. If you're the Straussian approach, Strauss has nothing to say about Hanfetsa. And yet, the, what I was suggesting is, well, actually, we can have them in very similar conversations. Let's ask them, what is human nature? Well, we've got we've got Machiavelli saying, you know, one thing you could say about human beings: they're dissemblers, they they run from danger, they uh, don't, you know, they promise when things are good, and then the moment you need them, they run away. So there are lots of great famous lines from from. Uh, the prince about human nature and Han Pizza is is fantastic. I mean, it's, he's just got some really really great insights into into human nature about what rulers want, about how rulers maintain power, how they effectively keep their principality. Right, the subject of the prince keep and maintain power as the subject of the prince. So, and yet there are all sorts of interesting differences between them. So one one difference is Machiavelli says, "Have henchmen do your dirty work." And Han Feitza says, no, don't have henchmen do your dirty work because then all of a sudden everybody will fear your henchmen and they won't fear you. So then this is the perfect moment I ask my students, what do you what do you think? Do you think do you think that the differences between Machiavelli and Han Feitza are really that great? You know, are they more similar or are they more different? So and, and then you can have all sorts of interesting com comparisons, right? That Han Feitza is very skeptical of these goody-goody tissues like Confucius and Lungsa and, and Machiavelli is, you know, Leo Strauss's favorite famous words, a teacher of evil, who's doing Plato and Aristotle don't even appear in their prints as if to say they don't even matter. So what, what happens is, is that 
you can really stage this this big conversation of, across time and place. And you know, I think that these authors are 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 still relevant today. So when I have students present, I I have students present on what the authors would say about a current event. So you know, what would what would Machiavelli or Hanfetsa advise the United States about what to do with Taiwan? What would they advise us to do about Ukraine? What would they advise us? So all of a sudden now we've got this really, really live topic that the students are interested in. And now the subject becomes incredibly important. And what's wonderful is that when the students start presenting, they start by saying what Machiavelli or Han Feitza would say about the topic. And then it sort of just subtly shifts to what they think and what everybody else in the class thinks. And then by the end of the discussion, we've all sort of forgot about Machiavelli and Feitza. We're just thinking really hard about what's a, what's a good realistic policy for United States to have in these places. And that's good. That's what thinking is. Thinking is having a conversation in your head. And so that's what I can do as a professor. I can put students in a place where it just seems natural to start thinking. And and you do, you know, you do set up the book in such a way where you're getting at some of these conversations and and these authors in in conversation. Um, and the second part of the book is again sort of teaching political theory today. That's the the section topic or, or the section title. Um, and and you talk about different sort of um, areas, if you will. Um, you you have a, you ha- you teach classes on education policy. You talk about the use of neuroscience, and you said if you'd had a little bit more time, you would have included a chapter in this section on economics. Um, obviously, you've talked about teaching political Chinese political thought, um, and also Greek political thought. But you have these sort of more contemporary areas in political science in social sciences and psychology, um, how do they figure into your thinking about teaching political theory? So the question is, is that we've, we've learned from, we, we, ha- we have to start our apprentice by reading the history of political thought. That's, for me, it's just crucial. That's, that's what I view my job as, that I'm the one who teaches the Federalist Papers, that I'm saying that's earlier, the, the thing that that there are all sorts of authors and traditions that I'm responsible for. So this past semester, this past year, I taught Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Students said, you know, well, it's good, but we, we all know those authors. So now I need to go back to the drawing board and start thinking, do I maybe bring in Ella Baker? Do I bring in some other thinkers? Who, who How do I make this material uh, come alive for students? But I'm, I'm also thinking, how do we teach students to advance the conversation? And so one way that, that we can do that is well, I, I tried to share some ideas about how I think we could do political theory, break new ground. And so the history of political thought is consumed by the question of what is human nature? David Shin calls it the capital of the human sciences. Kant calls it basically all philosophy boils down to the question, what is what is, what is is man or what is human nature? Uh, neuroscientists are discovering all sorts of amazing things about the brain about the body, about the second brain and the stomach. And it has all sorts of really important repercussions that, that, you know, we know if we're, if, if people are hungry, that they're more prone to fighting. So maybe, maybe we need to start, we need to start thinking about, well, as, so we can't necessarily be the neuroscientists. We can't necessarily even be perhaps the public health specialists, but we can read their work. And we can think about things like 
maybe we need to start thinking about um, what kind of smells are in school buildings. So this is kind of like a little bit crazy. And yet there's, there's all sorts of really interesting work about how the smell of lavender calms people down. So now we, we're, we can talk with our fellow political scientists and say, I've been thinking about this stuff about smell. You guys want to run some experiments? Like you have two classrooms, like two school buildings sort of similar to each other. And one of them you pump lavender in and the other one you don't. And is, is there a difference in, in the in the fighting and things like that? So it's a, uh, I think that studying neuroscience can, can lead to all sorts of really interesting political questions, political ramifications. Um, people like Nietzsche have had a hunch that, that, biology is important or that studying, I mean, I think my understanding is Nietzsche at the last, his plan right before he went crazy, unfortunately, is that he was going to spend like five years studying science. Like, that's a great idea. And our rent, one of the things that really surprised me is that you can see some of our syllabi online. So, um, and uh, Samantha Powers tweeted some of them and like, yeah, she was interested in, in how animals use camouflage. That's really neat. And when, certainly when I studied at Bill Con, uh, Johns Hopkins with Bill Connolly and Jane Bennett, that they were really interested in some of this stuff, right? That Jane Bennett's book on vibrant matter. So I, I that that chapter almost felt like cheating because there's just so much unexplored territory just waiting for somebody to write about it. So I I, I hope this, I hope the chapter is interesting. I hope it's full of ideas, but I also hope that. It gives people idea about how to to teach this material, maybe even research it, and just keep exploring this this new dimension of political theory. And and again, it's you know it's it is a guidebook of a kind that you've written, but it's not necessarily like you must follow this idea. No, no, I I I, I don't want to be told what to do. I I've, I've learned some things. Um, you know, one one of my favorite pieces of advice to share was from Joey Ramone. And I think that's what the remote, one of the remotes, uh, was saying that when you perform a concert, you should play to the back row. And so I, you know, I was so glad to get that little quote in print because that's what I do. When I when I when I lecture, I look to the back of the back of the room and I make eye contact with the back and I have to get everybody along the way before I reach them. And Nick and I ran into a couple of technical problems towards the end of the recording. Um, so he was unable to um, hang in for the whole discussion. But I want to thank Nick Tampio for joining me today to talk about teaching political theory, a pluralistic approach. This was published by Elgar Guides to Teaching in the Edward Elgar Publishing um, House. And this was published in 2022. Um, you can find this available at the Edward Elgar Publishing website, elgaronline.com. Thanks so much for joining me today, Nick. 